0: The customer has the ultimate decision. They're choosing where they're allocating their dollars. And so you need to make sure that they're the top priority. They always need to be the top priority.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. On today's episode of the Investing City podcast, we have James Reynolds. So James started... Tenebrist Global just about a year ago, worked at Shaw Spring Partners for five years and was a really integral part of the team. And we talk about some of his investments like Carvana, and he studied Amazon a ton. So please enjoy my conversation with James. This is just a great one. Okay, on today's episode of the Investing City podcast, super excited to have James Reynolds on. So thanks so much for being here, James.
0: Thanks a bunch, Ryan, for having me. I'm really excited to, to dive in. Really awesome. like what you've been up to do with your podcast and Investing City and everything.
1: Thanks, man. Um, so, yeah, why don't we start with a little bit of your background? Um, how'd you get interested in investing?
0: I think my first exposure was my dad, who was in the software realm during the GFC. He was picking some blue chip stocks on the side, big banks, Bank of America, Apple, like that type of stuff. I kind of watched him do that, reading through the journal. Uh, we kind of talked through what he was thinking about. So that was kind of always in the back of my head. And then I got this opportunity right after uh, my freshman year of college to intern at UBS Wealth Management. And the wealth management, it's, it's a sales role, really. There's not a ton of investing, right? You're bringing clients and then they've got their set allocation, everything. But that was a really cool platform for me to really just leverage all the research, market notes, everything that UBS has to offer. So it was kind of like a really interesting jumping off point where I kind of like was able to see their initiations on different companies. And then that was the summer where I really started to focus on investing. I opened up my own E-Trade account and we had a family friend working at a long short financials, regional banks, hedge fund in New York. And so I shadowed him a little bit, saw what he was doing. You know, he gets to talk to management teams and take advantage of Dislocations in the market, you know, people's change in, in sentiment and, and other people's emotions and all those things, and just use money to make more money. All those all those things sounded really interesting to me. It sounded like a really, really interesting game. And so I came in to BU as an economics major. So like it's very academic, very theoretical. So I knew I was going to have to kind of augment that with accounting and actual investment experience. So I had some investment banking internships, and then I had a really cool internship prior to graduation. At like a multifamily office in Boston. And it was mostly manager research to macro research. I got to work on a really cool project, which was a midstream MLP portfolio that one of their clients had. And so that was really like my first professional experience. And so like the head guy over there is really, really bright guy. He actually used to teach a investing and portfolio management major at BU but I basically like all senior year was only focused on trying to get into the buy side. Traditional path is obviously, you know, you do banking and then maybe go get an MBA and then you kind of network your way into a hedge fund or into PE or something. But I was really dead set on getting into the buy side right out of college, no matter what that would take. So it's obviously super difficult. I started the CFA past level one my senior year, but I graduated without a job. So I went back and talked to my supervisor at the multifamily office. And we talked through what the different options are. And, and he was telling me, you know, the, most of the funds in, in you know, the U.S., most of the hedge funds out there, it's a segment that's in secular decline. And maybe you know, an emerging manager opportunity would probably be the most promising. Someone who could hire a young guy. And he put me in touch with a couple funds in Boston. And one that ended up being Shawspring. And so I started there. What was it, probably like fall of 2015, they had just launched. And we're talking 10, 15 million in assets, not, not a big fund by any means. And so I think at the time they were working on Visa and JD were kind of like the new investments in the portfolio. I had worked on a loyalty and rewards research project on Visa. I was working on some econometric work for trying to model Transdimes, aftermarket aerospace business. So like really, really ad hoc stuff, you know, in the first couple of months there. And so I ended up interning for what, eight, nine months for free with Shawspring doing kind of four days a week there and, and two to three days a week at another fund in Boston that I was connected with called Par Capital, which is a much bigger fund, five, six billion airlines, gaming, similar to Altimeter. And so eight, nine months later, after done probably you know, 150 slide deck on TJX, 100 page write up on Amazon and a few other write ups, and I flew out to Australia just to you know, for kind of a two week thing to, to visit a buddy from, from university. And I ended up flying around the country from Brisbane to Sydney to, to Melbourne, just meeting with different management teams, different Australian companies. And I think you know, the combination of you know, some of the write-ups and the initiative to spend my time in Australia to go try and become a better investor and add value to the team, obviously in addition to them bringing on a $50 million endowment account, kind of propelled them to, to bring me on, on board. And so it was really, I mean, it's still a small team over there, but it was a really, really small team back then. So it was um, you know, the founder, the CFO kind of the first analyst who was a little bit older than me. And then me as kind of the second analyst on the team pulling a weight. And um, yeah, it it progressed really quickly. I started off really with those, those small projects and and quickly moved on to big slide decks like TJX and, uh, and Amazon and continue to try and make myself indispensable to the team. And I kind of did those in in, in three different dimensions. One, obviously, sourcing investments, researching them from beginning to end, and then contributing on portfolio management and everything and position sizing and philosophy around that. And then second was process improvements. How can we get better? How can we save time here and there? How can we make more money? How can we improve the return on on our time where there's only three of us on the investment team and 20,000 publicly traded investment opportunities out there, so... And then threefold was, was the letters. You're trying to build an investment business. You can do that obviously by putting up just insane numbers, but you know, there's a there's a distribution, there's a go-to-market, there's a marketing component to all these businesses. And I thought we could kind of kill two birds with one stone. I wanted to spend some time as a young investor in, in the industry, just focusing on certain topics that I was interested in. But I think in a lot of firms, it's hard to kind of Make that pitch to the CEO or the CIO or the PMs. They just want you to keep researching, keep researching companies. So I was able to convince the team hey, if we pick some interesting topics and instead of just keeping them internal, we use those as our, our quarterly letters, something akin to, uh, obviously not as good, but maybe the growth investors version of a Buffett letter or or a Bezos letter, you know, that could really help our go to market and obviously make us significantly better investors over time. So kind of the third bucket was initiating and, and authoring the, uh, the Shotspur Spring Quarterly letters while I was there. Through all that growth and contribution, two years after being made a, an analyst on the team, I was made partner and head of investment research. So those really small firms, there's a lot of opportunity
2: for growth. So just super grateful for, for that opportunity to join the team there. And I still focus on hypergrowth today, but definitely with an added emphasis on beaten down or misunderstood equities. These hypergrowth businesses in attractive valuation. There usually has to be some type of reason why the market hasn't bid the the multiple up. And oftentimes that can be that there's an outstanding short report or the P and L. And economics are just very very difficult to understand and decipher and that leaves opportunity for someone like me where i can take the time to understand what's really going on underneath the hood and so i try to be as concentrated as possible but also as diversified as possible where i want to only have exposure to a couple e-commerce or consumer internet companies a couple SaaS companies i want exposure across japan us korea sweden germany brazil and I think I can build a really, really interesting portfolio that way.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And I've got to say, those letters are, are top-notch. Um, so you did, you did an awesome job.
0: I mean, I would yeah, love- No, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it, they, they took a lot of time. So, I mean, that's the good thing about working at a fund with a concentrated portfolio structure like that. You got a five-stock fund between three investment professionals. We only realistically need to make one or two investments in, in any year. So there was time for me to just spend three, four weeks researching and, and writing up a 30-page paper essay on network effects or cognitive reference or ecosystems or marketplaces and such.
1: Yeah, I, I think one big takeaway is kind of this idea of ecosystem control. Um, so, I mean, I'd love for you to kind of just dive into that and and tell listeners what's that about if they if they haven't heard of that concept.
0: Yeah, so... Ecosystem control is still super important to how I, I think about investing. It's basically the concept that business is the center of its ecosystem. It has suppliers on one side of its network. It's got consumers or businesses or some type of demand on the other side. And then kind of like adjacent to this all is you've got different partners and the government and competitors and employees and, and such, right? There's just all of these different types of nodes that are either like individuals or companies or some entities in the ecosystem. And ecosystem control is the ultimate example of competitive advantage. If you have ecosystem control, your employees want to work for you. Your suppliers just love to continue to sell you stuff, right? Because they're making a ton of money off of of your business and the growth in your business. Your product or your service is loved by your customers. You know, your partners are making money off of you as well. Maybe you're adding value to the government, or at least they're not targeting you. And then all of those factors keep your competition at bay especially if you're the scaled player in the space. The second side of ecosystem control would be all of those constituents are so dependent on you, but you are not dependent on any of them individually as well, right? So there is this kind of second side where business could add a tremendous amount of value to all of those constituents and be the scaled player, but also not exhibit ecosystem control If there's too much concentration on any particular customer, supplier, partner, business could have 30% of its sales coming from one customer or through one type of reseller channel or from one supplier, or, you know, maybe the CEO or one individual employee is just like so important to product roadmap or the sales and go to market, or maybe there's just a ton of government risk, right? Maybe they've been consistently targeting your, your business or the industry as a whole. So like, that's an example where a company could add a tremendous amount of value to all the, all the constituents in the ecosystem, uh, but also not exhibit full ecosystem control. Because, you know, I mean, there's countless examples of partners and suppliers and, and customers pulling off or something happening to them for whatever reason and a good chunk of your revenue, a good chunk of your business, you know, goes away overnight.
2: Like Chicago, where it got... Huge chunk of its revenue from Priceline. They ended up pulling back spend. Or a Japanese company I've been researching lately called AI inside, where they had a reseller partner that onboarded a bunch of customers, wasn't able to f- successfully support them, and then you know, has to, ended up creating a lot of churn. And that partnership is currently dissolving.
1: Yeah. So I, I would love for you to touch on. You know, what are some elements of kind of like locating players that have ecosystem control? Like if somebody wanted to go out and and find a company that had good uh, ecosystem control what would would you kind of recommend yeah definitely i
0: mean so on on the, the second component right like the lack of concentration in any particular you know constituent i mean it's obviously it's super important to understand like i love to just kind of like paint a, a visual picture of of the company's ecosystem but also you know going through the filings and everything and like i really don't like to invest in any company that maybe gets more than 15% of their business from any customer or supplier or through any type of like reseller challenge because it exhibits too much risk. So that's kind of like how you have to do it. Who are the partners? Like how exactly do they go to go to market, right? Like what is the process from start to finish? So like, if we were to rebuild this business today, what would that look like? And then you get a better sense of, okay, well, every single sale goes through this particular partner. You know, that's obviously you know a huge, a huge risk if that partner chooses to go to some other competitor In terms of identifying companies that add a ton of value, the most interesting companies for me are usually those that are growing. I mean, my filter doesn't really start with the qualitative side as much as it does start with the quantitative side. So I mean, I usually I'm I'm filtering from growth first, which like I hate the value versus growth debate because obviously you need you need growth at the at the right multiple at a cheap multiple to generate super high returns. But I think after you've found those hyper growth businesses, you definitely need to talk to each of the constituents. You need to have a handful of conversations with the suppliers and and the partners, and especially the customers. I mean, because at the end of the day, like the customer has the ultimate decision; they're choosing where. They're allocating their dollars, and so you need to make sure that they're the top priority. They always need to be the top priority, and so making sure that I mean, you can, you can filter by NPS, employee NPS. There's obviously flaws to, to all those different types of metrics, but those are those are you know customer satisfaction. Uh, those are good starting points in terms of high level metrics to to figure out if the customers are actually enjoying the product or the service. I think culturally, you'll You'll get a sense after you talk to employees about like how does the management, what's their approach to, to dealing with employees and incentivizing them and do people like the CEO, do they feel valued? Do they feel motivated every day? What's the turnover like compared to the index, right? There's always going to be certain sectors that have super high employee turnover, but you like to at least index above the average on, on those types of metrics. Gotcha.
1: Um, so I think it'd be interesting to kind of go through an example of ecosystem control, um, maybe at Shawspring or, or a company that you worked on a lot and, and kind of going through those consist- constituents and, and uh, you know, why they exhibited that, that control over the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the way I approach the world kind of comes from the really, really impressive blue chips that I studied in my early days at Shaw Springs. My three biggest focus areas are consumer internet, software as a service, and kind of legacy consumer businesses. And I was really lucky early on to get the opportunity to study Amazon in e commerce and in consumer internet, Salesforce in software, and these uh, like Domino's and Hilton in consumer brands. And those obviously all demonstrate control. I think the way that they've approached it. In the- Characteristics I look for in in businesses now, right? They've really created horizontally and vertically integrated businesses. So, I mean, Domino's was there like, what, 30 years early to dark kitchens. Just these like small delivery focused operations on like the outskirts of town where where they were just doing 15, 20 minute delivery. And, you know, same with Amazon, obviously with like logistics and moving from category to category to category from books into CDs, electronics, now that, you know, grocery all those different types of things. So I think that's one way to to kind of do it is through horizontal and vertical integration, continuing to to add new products and services. Like that's kind of how you separate from the pack. If you, you want to be a moving target as a company, if you just stay in one place, your competitors will catch up to you eventually. The way that you continue to stay Beyond them is this concept that i like to think about called accumulating scale advantage. And so it's just the concept that as time passes through your specific strategy, the delta between you and like your competition widens, just time passing. And that can be through just adding new inventory, adding new categories, adding new customers. If you're talking about logistics, it can be through increased logistics density or a price flywheel with Amazon, right? As it scales, it's 1P operation, pushes prices down and passes those along to consumers. I think those are all really good examples. I mean, I have basically just applied the Amazon thesis in consumer internet to other categories like automobile. So it comes from the idea that every single offline experience
2: will basically have an internet version. When I realized this was when I was looking at the Momo live streaming business in China. I didn't really understand it because like it hadn't migrated to the US yet. And I was trying to understand why are these people, these strangers on the internet, gifting these roses or any, any other kind of virtual gifts with a, a dollar equivalent value to these KOLs, these, these influencers, these online streamers. And then it finally clicked. I was like, oh, this is the online equivalent of the flexing that goes on at bars, clubs, gentlemen's clubs with bottle service and throwing money, etc., And so that's why from the get-go, I was probably less skeptical
0: of Carvana selling cars online than maybe the average investor, because I just fundamentally come from the perspective that all all offline experiences will have a, a digital equivalent. So that kind of led me to Carvana. Carvana's ecosystem control, while they were obviously really, really small when we started looking at them, I think internet penetration of the auto category in 2018, we started researching Carvana was 50 basis points, right? Well sub 1%, but they had 90% of the market share within that market. So even though that market is really, really small overall, they were dominant within their niche. And we thought that that niche was going to become mainstream over some time horizon. And so that was kind of what, really tipped us off that there might be something interesting behind Carvana. And then it was just the Amazon philosophy, owning everything, owning logistics, owning financing, doing everything in-house creates a better customer experience. That was evident from the website, from customer testimonials, from the MPS score. Being end-to-end, there aren't that many partners. So I mean, there's the, there's not really like a supply side in the auto industry like there would be for like an Amazon because you're buying used cars. So that comes from an auction. So there's no really like procurement side like
2: there would be if you're just purchasing apparel from like Ralph Lauren or something. We did think about it. We were wondering what could car auction services that operates the Odessa auctions, what could Mannheim do to Carvana that would impact their business? Could they force Carvana to pay higher fees? Could they not let them, bid remotely and make them go in person, just trying to be as creative as possible on thinking about those supply side risks. And after we understood what CarMax's relationship looked like with the big auction houses, where they actually have more power and more benefits of being a large buyer at those auctions, we came to the conclusion that Car and Mannheim weren't going to do anything to adversely impact Carvana and actually as they scaled, they'd probably get lower fees and better access and transparency into the auction process and what inventory was coming through those lines. Second and third biggest
0: online auto retailers at the time are Room and Shift. And so they were taking kind of an asset light approach. And I think that usually is the case in most markets is that there's typically one player who is not taking a shortcut. They're taking the long road. They're taking the most capital intensive approach. It's going to take the most time and energy and money. And those are the businesses that usually end up being the winners over the long run. And so we didn't think that the asset light approach of Vroom or a shift was really going to produce the the customer experience that was necessary in such a nascent category where you're buying a $20,000 vehicle that's a big purchase to to do online especially for 2018 so they didn't have the right approach one they didn't have the capital necessary to even scale inventory or logistics or customer acquisition and that was evident in the the data as well because i mean i think carvana had entered maybe 60 markets at the time, and, and Vroom and Shift, I think Vroom was still kind of just in the Texas area at that, at that point, and Shift was just really in the Bay Area. So the accumulating scale advantage and, and uh, the ecosystem control was evident in the amount of inventory that Carvana had, the number of markets that they had entered relative to the competition, and it was evident in the market share and MPS and, and sales, pretty much in everything in the online segment. So they were going to dominate the online segment regardless, right? But there's still obviously 99.5% of the, of the vehicles, used vehicles in the US are sold offline, right? So I think the reason we we didn't necessarily believe that like a CarMax or Automation were really going to be strong competitors online was that there is a structural cost advantage to Carvana, just like I think most online players have and we did the math and if you take a look basically at all the reconditioning centers and then the headquarters and some local market pubs just small offices and and the vending machines they would have 90 percent less real estate than carmax to sell the identical number of vehicles so we basically just projected Carvana's PL forward and real estate footprint forwards to you know 800,000 units at the time, which is where, where CarMax was in in 2018. And we said, yeah based off of their historical patterns and correlation between real estate footprint and sales, they would only need 10% of the real estate footprint and then if you take all of that real estate, And the the rent and CapEx, you allocate that across the 800,000 vehicles, that would be a savings of $1,500 per vehicle. And then there's some other cross-market arbitrages that you get where you can buy certain types of vehicles in certain markets for cheaper because there's just a lot of supply there. So you can buy convertibles in Florida. It's the cheapest market to buy convertibles just because there's so many of them. You can buy cheap pickup trucks in, in Texas because there's so many pickup trucks. Those types of arbitrages exist in the market as well, where you can then take those pickup trucks, sell them in San Francisco, take the convertibles, sell them in the Northeast, and pick up a spread there. And we we did, we did all the math on all those types of vehicles and, and we saw that it is true. You know, you can just kind of take all the listings on the different classifieds websites and run a regression and, and figure those numbers out. So obviously, like if you're talking about a unit cost advantage, if theoretically Carvana wanted to pass that along to the consumer and CarMax was to compete on that, right, that would take their EBIT per vehicle negative. So not only there's a, there's a huge issue where like very few publicly traded companies would actually sacrifice the profit necessary to compete on price if Carvana were to operate at an ASP that was you know, $1,500 below CarMax. Um, and two, it's just a cultural thing, right? I mean, CarMax is very slow moving. Um, so we did continue to do expert calls with former, former CarMax people. And they're great, but they're just, you know, they're not the type of business. And they had the opportunity to buy to buy Carvana over the years and, and didn't do that. That's obviously a story that's been told in a variety of different industries. But we just we just didn't get the sense that Carmax was a company that was going to either incubate its own independent online used vehicle retailer, which is what they probably should have done, or really pivot the entire strategy. And you just have such an issue. I mean, you have all this real estate what do, and your sales are dependent on the real estate. So how do you re-optimize? I think it's kind of like an issue that GameStop is going through and all these kind of brick and mortar retailers is how do you re-optimize your real estate footprint without losing sales? Because your sales are directly tied to the real estate. You have way too much real estate. So you need to either pick a new store location that's nearby so you can continue to capture that demand, but there would be no place to keep all the inventory, right? So there's just a lot of issues. So we look for industries where there's that type of innovator's dilemma, incumbent dilemmas, right? Where they just can't. It's just too hard culturally and economically to shift their strategies and pivot to where the market is going, where consumer demands are going. and. And just having studied Amazon for probably probably 12 months of my time with ShopSpring was spent studying Amazon, right? People want one, two-day delivery, transactional online experience, quick, easy customer service. They want refunds and they want it to be easy to send stuff back if they don't like it. So that experience, like Amazon has fundamentally shifted how consumers behave. And so every consumer internet company, in my opinion, needs to be operating as as
2: such. Tying this all back into ecosystem control, we didn't really worry that any of of the auctions were going to pose much of a risk to Carvana. We didn't believe any of the competitors were going to pose much of a risk to Carvana. We did worry about Ally as being a a partner that they were pretty dependent on for inventory financing and other debt-like instruments but what we had determined there was that the relationship had been there long enough from you know the really early days and so carvana had grown tremendously since then and they continued to you know renew those contracts and we believe that if there were any kind of adverse scenarios for carvana that the shareholder base was high quality enough that they'd be able to raise not overly dilutive equity financing uh, pretty much at any given point in time, which, which did occur during the pandemic, you know, March, April, 2020.
1: So, yeah, thanks so much for going through all that really interesting, just breaking down Carvana from beginning to end. So, I mean, you mentioned studying Amazon for 12 months. What does that actually look like spending your time on, on one company over a year period? Like what things are you diving into? Is it just talking to a lot of people? Just give us a a taste of what that actually looks like to go that deep on a company.
0: That's honestly kind of like what's necessary to, to research these mega cap technology businesses. They're an amalgamation of Wayfair plus Chewy, plus all these different types of businesses, plus Salesforce, plus Microsoft, everything. It's one company, right? But you're really studying, you know, a hundred different divisions within it and, and different countries. We were studying the opportunity in India. I mean, we were trying to study AWS, right? We were studying LATAM. So like all the opportunities outside of the core, US and Europe. We we're trying to understand the history. In my opinion, I don't know how much of like a, a specific strategy this was, but if you look back at the categories that they entered from the beginning, they entered with books, which is super interesting because... If you've read the everything store books were the longest tail category that can create such a step function improvement over Barnes and Nobles, because there's just millions of books out there. And so by bringing that inventory online, like that was, that was going to be the, the customer experience that was just so much better than what you were getting from the offline. And I'm sure Barnes and Nobles has thousands of SKUs, but I'm sure Amazon online has millions. And then they moved into CDs, electronics, which is basically, okay, Barnes and Nobles, and then Borders, and then Best Buy with electronics. They just continued to move with these adjacent retailers that were present in the offline space. They did it in a very, very thoughtful and strategic manner that made sense for the consumer. You can't just go from point A to point Z. You need to go through the entire alphabet. So that it's it's logical in the consumer's mind. So it was studying a lot of like the history of the company, read everything store. So that obviously took some time. And then yeah, just a lot of time spent on potential new areas for them: social commerce, India, healthcare. It was like maybe half spent on understanding Amazon today and, and where they've come from, and half thinking about where where could this business be? You know, 10, 15 years from now. So it's really like the, the creativity and just trying to extrapolate and, and see where they can move and how they can continue to expand the addressable market that took a lot of the time.
1: Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, so at the very beginning, you talked about um, kind of like three things that you're doing for shopspring of sourcing investments, process improvements, um, and as well as you know, like writing the letters. Uh, so I'd love to talk a little bit about that second piece of process improvements. Like, what were some things that uh, you did that really made the the process of research? And you mentioned this phrase, return on time. Um, I would love for you to talk about what that looks like in your own investing, and how do you how do you really increase that return on time as an investor?
0: Personally. I just, I hate wasting time. You know, one of those people who hates meetings and I'm just like always trying to, to figure out ways to cut out BS and and just really focusing on super, super qualitative research. There were a ton of process improvements. I mean, some of the big ones were when I first started and it was super helpful to do this, but we, we did all discounted cash flows in like the first two years of, of me being at the company, which was hugely time consuming. I mean, we, we made a template by the end, but like we we're kind of building them all up by, from scratch, and it's really good because you kind of understand all the moving parts and levers to, to valuation, cost of capital, you know, trajectory of free cash flow, durability of free cash flow are kind of, are kind of the, the most important in my in my opinion. But it's just way too time consuming to continue to build those DCFs out. One and two, I just didn't think that our results were. And when I say results, I mean kind of like the output from a DCF, right? Especially because we're we're doing a lot of growth businesses, and there's gonna be so much value tied up in those in those terminal years and projecting out free cash flow ten years from now, and then you're just discounting at ten percent or something. You're gonna get some ridiculous DCF value, like compared to what the current stock price is trading at. And so I just didn't think it had a lot of predictive value for our investment um, and portfolio management. So I think like a couple of examples were. We were investing in JD at probably like 30 bucks a share with like a $9 stock price target from our DCFs. And like, same with like Expedia and Visa and stuff. We were just getting like ridiculous DCF values relative to like the current stock price or at like the current earnings power of the business. So that was kind of like my biggest process, one of the biggest process improvements. And one of my biggest realizations that I've made that's kind of influenced how I think about things today is moving from dcfs while still understanding the drivers of a dcf and that, that is the proper way to to value a company and value cash flows but that it's just it's too time consuming it has very low predictive value in my opinion and if you just get really really good at at multiples and predicting a certain financial kpi per share that that can be way more predictive and especially when we're trying to outperform the market by 10, 20, 30% per year, we have a mandate that's to, to put up 30% annualized returns. There's not a lot of room to be wrong. And so you can't have a lot of underperforming positions. So one of the biggest realizations I've had is, in my opinion, stock prices are highly correlated to the earnings power or intrinsic value of the, the underlying business right? Earnings power being some type of either current operating profit per share or some type of normalized operating profit per share. So whatever the market thinks, this revenue level, this is the type of EBITDA or free cash flow that they could produce. And then there's some type of multiple that's ascribed to that free cash flow and the trajectory of free cash flow based off of the growth rate and like how high quality those cash flows are, right? A subscription business is all things equal is going to probably trade at a higher multiple than some type of non-recurring revenue business. And so if you're trying to generate super high returns in the market and you believe that stock prices are correlated to earnings power and intrinsic value, then you want to be focusing on the businesses that are growing intrinsic value and earnings power at the fastest clip, as long as you're not getting a tremendous amount of multiple compressions. That's that's kind of how you get killed as a, as a growth investor. And you can kind of like mathematically back that out too. Like if you just think about what are the components of return? It's just the classic... I think it's Glenn Greenberg. Free cash flow yield plus growth plus change in multiple. So that's why I said like, oh, like there's obviously the the value and the growth component to being an investor that just kind of depends on what you filter for first. Like, are you filtering for only the growth companies or or are you starting your filter at only low multiple companies? That's my interpretation of value versus growth It's kind of like where in the return composition or return decomposition do you kind of start? That was a big process improvement, a big realization for me. I was just to really focus on the growth and really focus on multiples and, and figuring out what the key financial KPIs are per share and just getting better at building price targets, annual price targets, and then kind of optimizing around those. I made a watch list. I didn't want to take up any time figuring out who on the team should be working on what. So we could take those price targets, basically create a list of all the companies in our universe, global internet, global SaaS, let's say, growing faster than 30%. Do back of the envelope price targets for all those companies. And then whenever a company sold off, that would become kind of like the top priority in the list. And then once we did all the research on that, then we could create a portfolio management model around these price targets as well. And so like the price target approach really, really influenced our sourcing and then our portfolio management. Because then we could say, Okay, well, the expected return of stock X is 50% and stock Y is 25%. Maybe it should be twice as big. That's obviously like really rudimentary, but directionally right for like how the, the portfolio management works. So you're always allocating to your best risk adjusted ideas versus, I think a lot of people out there just put the maybe the least risky opportunities at the top of the portfolio, which is like a, just like a very risk-averse way to do things, not really you know, mathematically logical.
1: Yeah. Super helpful. Um, I think that I actually went through a very similar uh, progression. So it's, it's really interesting to hear um, talking about multiple. So like these price targets, I feel like the multiple almost becomes the most difficult piece of it just because sentiment and everything. Like, how do you think about with the price targets? What's the right multiple?
0: So I have my own philosophy On it for non, and I basically split it into like recurring and non-recurring businesses. I really think that's an important kind of split to identify. I think for consumer internet businesses, they typically trade at I usually use maybe like one times peg. So like from doing the DCFs, you figure out over time where the important thresholds are. So an annuity. If you're discounting it at, I don't know, long-term S&P rate or just like 10% whack or cost of equity, that that cash flow is basically worth 10 times free cash flow because you're just doing $1 divided by 10%. So that's kind of like the lower Mm -hmm. bounds. So if you have a company growing 0% and you know that that cash flow is going to be there for a while, like it's not declining. Then that cash flow is probably worth 10 times free cash flow. It's when you get into these ridiculous growth rates that the multiples get really, really tough. So if you're looking at like a snowflake, I think it's really, really tough to value a business like that. But when you're kind of dealing in like the 30, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent range, like I usually use kind of like a, a one times peg or something around that. Um, and I found that to be pretty accurate. I mean, you can also use like justified PE ratios, so it is somewhat dependent on interest rates. But I think like one times peg is kind of how I've how I've done it. And then yeah, you have to just kind of like ratchet it up a little bit whenever you're looking at like a subscription business, like a software SaaS companies. There's gonna be, I think, less, you know, aversion to paying super high multiples and there you have this contractually recurring cash flow stream and revenue stream. So like a snowflake growing 150% might trade at you know 150 times like normalized free cash flow, but like consumer internet business growing 150% probably maybe be like half that, maybe like 60, 70 times, but that's the, there's no kind of maybe lingering anything like any overhangs, you know, if there's a short report or um, allegations of fraud, and those are kind of like unique examples as well. But if it's like a normal average sentiment business, I think those, those one times peg multiples will hold up for what I've seen in the growth arena. When you get into other areas, like bond, like, assets a CPG companies those may trade off of interest rates especially if they pay a dividend or if they have a constant free cash flow yield or something they may just trade off of some equity risk premium to the long-term government bond yields
2: but figuring out which multiple to use is actually the easiest part the difficult part is figuring out which normalized margin to use because you've basically break out the fixed cost component of the P;L and cash flow statement and then figure out what the marginal or the unit economics component is. And then triangulate what the margin would be at different revenue or volume levels.
1: Gotcha. So when you're saying peg, that's typically, you know, if this company likes if, like Snowflake doesn't have, have gap earnings, it's like a normalized profit. And then uh, Yeah, well,
0: that's why like these software businesses have ripped so much in the last like you know, three-ish years. I think I don't know exactly what year it was, but I think probably kind of out of 2017. People really started to figure out software as a service and like the long-term margins and just the, the business quality there. And I think so now pretty much like everyone ascribes rule of 40 and backs into long-term margins based off of rule of 40. And so like I think I'll probably always under-index to software as a service just because it's so much easier, I think, on average for an investor, retail or, or hedge fund or mutual fund or whoever. To underwrite those businesses because there's not as much nuance or change. There's nothing dynamic to the unit economics. Basically, the CAC is you're paying some salesperson a commission rate. There's all these long term examples of companies getting to 30, 40 plus percent free cash flow margins at maturity. So I think people have pretty much standardized to that, unlike consumer internet, where the customer acquisition costs can vary so much depending on the day and the month and the year. And you have so many other adjacent costs as well. I A mean, Wayfair and Amazon has like logistics costs and, and call center and, and all these different things. Software companies typically have the same costs, right? they have customer success people to retain clients and you're paying salespeople to go find new logos and you're spending some amount of your gross profit on R&D, the P&Ls look very similar across the board, and they all just have hosting costs as like the only cogs. So, like, they're very similar across the board versus like a, a consumer internet PL can just vary so much whether or not you're looking at Wayfair, or Amazon, or Carvana. There's so many different costs and the way they account for all different types of costs. Like, Wayfair, you know, they're really kind of like a marketplace consignment model, but they recognize all their GMV as revenue. Going back to the dynamicism of the unit economics, because Digital marketing channels are so supply and demand-based. There's any slight changes to supply and demand balance on on Google or Facebook or Instagram. There's some slight changes to churn that can just completely mess up the unit economics. But like churn, I don't think really changes that frequently in software as it can in in consumer internet. So it's just a lot more competitor-driven changes, like impacts to the unit economics, which makes the research of the unit economics a lot more difficult. And therefore you'll find a lot more opportunities for, for really, really cheap uh, consumer internet stocks. So I think probably for me, yeah, always over index the consumer internet because of that.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting framing. Um, so just kind of last thing, you mentioned position sizing. Um, so is that you said directionally like, okay, we have this expected return 50 versus 25 might size it two X. Um, is that like, just would love to hear some more thoughts about position sizing.
0: That was like the really, really rudimentary version of how I started the portfolio management model. But then you figure out other variables so You just bring up different case studies. You'll find two companies and you'll say, you know, if we held JD.com and, and Amazon, two similar business models in two different countries, if they had the same expected return or the same base case IRR, would we hold those in equal size? you'd probably say no I mean if we had amazon at 30% irr and jd at 30% irr we would probably feel more comfortable holding amazon then you say okay you know why why is that there's something inherent to jd that's riskier than amazon regardless of what you think a 5 years price target will yield you versus today's price is that just China ADR risk and the VIE structure is that the risk of some type of government changes in the industry. Is it that Baba is the player in in China that exhibits the most ecosystem control? And so you really try to dig in on what are the important variables and then you standardize that across the board. Maybe we'll have a factor for position in the competitive landscape. Maybe JD scores lower than Amazon for their market share or their market position. Maybe China scores lower from kind of like a geographical perspective. Maybe we've been researching Amazon longer so we just understand the business better. Maybe, maybe completeness of research is is another variable. Maybe you're looking at a subscription business for not versus a non-subscription business, right? Maybe we added that variable for degree of recurringness of the revenue. We just built up all these different variables over time and I've continued to add variables um, that I think are important. And then that makes it so that you know exactly what your portfolio managing on i've always been anti going with your gut and really having numbers to to back up decisions uh, it's important for my decision making process that i know that there's math driving all these decisions and then yeah there's also other other variables we started off with just the base irrs just kind of allocate like it, like you said if it's you know 30% and 15% is is the 30% IRR going to be a twice as big a, a position as the 15% IRR? Well, it also depends on what's your, what's your hurdle rate. I mean, if your hurdle rate is zero, then yes. But if your hurdle rate is 15%, the 15% IRR position, maybe that shouldn't be in the portfolio at all. Maybe So maybe you have to allocate excess return over a certain benchmark or, or threshold. So those are other kinds of additions that, that I added to the model over time.
1: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Just a closing question I'd like to ask is, are there any daily habits that you have um, that have contributed to your success?
0: I pretty much format all of my days identical and I break them up. So like I'm always doing calls at a certain time. I always go to the gym at 1 p.m. And that's pretty much same every single day, even Saturday and Sunday. And that just helps me keep a normal routine all the time. You know, It's super important for me to get out midday, just not be thinking about markets, I just feel better when I exercise and everything. And it's just been really important for me to not segment Monday through Friday, like is work and then like Saturday, Sunday is like life, but I just want it to be a lot more cohesive than that. And so taking the time to go to the gym and allocating some time, 10 to 5 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday has been super important to me, just you know, maintaining kind of a, a balanced lifestyle where it doesn't feel like I have these two lives that I'm living, but just having this, this one kind of cohesive life.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, well, thanks so much, James. Um, Really appreciate it. And it was great meeting you.
0: No, thank you, Ryan. It's been awesome. Yeah. look forward to staying in touch and thanks again.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the investing city podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.